0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by The McKinsey Quarterly. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. My guest today was thrust into the limelight three years ago when he was appointed Chief Executive Officer at Microsoft. Satya Nadella became only the third CEO in the company's history, following Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. He also took over at a time when Microsoft was searching for its next act. Could a company built on software for PCs and servers adapt to a world of cloud computing? Could a man who'd risen through the ranks at Microsoft lead the company boldly into a new era? Well, three years on, there's no question that Satya Nadella Has put his stamp on Microsoft. He's doubled down on cloud computing, acquired LinkedIn, and above all pushed the organisation to be more customer-focused, collaborative and agile. Last year he published Hit Refresh, a book recounting his personal journey, management philosophy and vision for the company. And for the record, it's actually quite a good read. Recently I was lucky enough to sit down with a man and asked him to delve a little deeper on what he's been doing to hit refresh on what remains one of the world's biggest and most influential tech companies. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Well, Satya, thank you for
1: doing this. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with culture change, if you don't mind. It's a big theme in the book. Clearly, you decided to make that, you know, a big theme for this first part of your tenure as CEO. Why culture change compared to other things that you could have focused on?
1: You know, one of the things um, I've come to realize is for companies that have been successful, one of the things that happens is the original idea or the concept uh, that became a hit, the capability you built around it, and the culture that implicitly grew as you were growing the business, all get into this beautiful virtuous cycle and round and round it goes. But there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. At some point, the concept or the idea that made uh, you successful is gonna run out of gas and you need new capability to go after new concepts and the only thing that's going to enable you to keep building new capability, trying out new concepts, long before it's conventional wisdom, is culture. So I would argue that for a successful company, you will have to overemphasize, in some sense, the right culture so that you can continue to cultivate new capability and new concepts. And that's one of the reasons why, at least, you know, we were, what I think when I became CEO, we were already a 40-year-old company. And it felt that it was very important for us to make culture a first-class explicit conversation so that we can then reinvent ourselves, invent new things. And that's the reason why I prioritized it.
0: Can I introduce a fourth C Hmm. into your, you've got this wonderful trifecta of concept, capability, and culture. There is arguably a fourth, which is around the configuration of a company, both how it's organized the lines and boxes, but also the business processes that, that underpin it and make it run. Are there any sort of process or org changes that you've championed in the first three years or so of CEO that have supported
1: what you've been trying to do? That's actually a very good point. Configuration or structure is actually super important, except one of the things that I've come to realize is structure can help, uh, in some sense, reinforce even the first three Cs perhaps, but it should not get in the way Of you reinventing or coming up with new concepts and that's the fundamental challenge for example when the business is doing well you in the name of accountability in the name of efficiency in the name of sort of lower transactional costs you by definition get organized by business unit or what have you and it reinforces even the next level of productivity gain and efficiencies and accountability except it becomes hard to reconflate some of the capabilities to build new products across these divisions. And that's always the challenge. And in tech, uh, it's even worse because we don't have long periods of stability. If anything, the periods of stability are short and getting shorter. So you can use structure sometimes in order to reduce transaction costs and in order to be able to improve efficiency. But in the long run, we are much more capability driven. In fact, I, I, you know, I, I want a silicon capability. I want a cloud computing capability. I want an AI capability. I want great product aesthetics and devices. And then we want to be able to take that and then apply it to different markets that we may choose to participate in in different times. And without that strategic flexibility, it's very, very hard. And I would argue that in a world where every business now is a digital business, this is probably one of the bigger challenges. Uh, And I see this when I talk to many customers uh, we partner with who have come, say, an industrial conglomerate or an energy company and what have you. It's very, very hard, because culturally, they're all about business units, but digital recognizes no digital unit, right? I mean, uh, you need to be able to bring things together, uh, and that's probably one of the more transformative changes that many CEOs will have to confront.
0: That move towards functional capabilities Mm. was already in train, I think, wasn't it, before you took over as a CEO? Is there anything that you've been able to do to sort of accelerate
1: that? Yeah, I mean, we have... First of all, I think that was one of the biggest changes that Steve made, which has been super beneficial because otherwise I don't think we would have been able to change as much as we have because it's a necessary condition. So in some sense there, that configuration allowed us to reconflate because otherwise we would have had a lot more, uh, I would say institutional resistance to that just because of what people's incentives and measurements were. But that has helped us out tremendously. If you think about one of the things that we now don't, we don't talk about our products of course, products and product truth ultimately matters, but what to me matters is, what are we being hired for, right? Or customer-in ways of thinking about markets and categories. For example, how are we enabling the modern workplace? It's not just about Office, or Office 365, or Windows, or EMS. These are all brands and tools and applications we love. And But ultimately, we have to deliver Companies, their ability to empower their employees so that modern work can happen and they can collaborate, they can communicate in new ways, they can, in some sense, get more out of their people. Um, That's what uh, is sort of super important. So we've really changed a lot of how we think about customer orientation at this company because of this.
0: I'm guessing that you've done some interesting things around performance management, for example, or around compensation to reinforce these you know, this this more cross-functional, cross-business unit, customer orientation. Is there anything that you can or want to talk about there?
1: I mean, for sure, one of the big things that we have done at the leadership level is uh, really come at um, the shared metrics. And in fact, uh, we have this distinction between what we call performance metrics and power metrics. Performance metrics are, in some sense, in-year Uh, revenue and profit and things of that nature. And power metrics are more metrics which are about future year performance. In other words, leading indicators of future success, which are more about usage, customer love or satisfaction. Uh, So we now have a blend of metrics that are few, uh, but are shared. And a large part of the compensation for me and my leadership team is fundamentally based on that. Okay, so actually that scorecard has been reconfigured. Correct. In fact, one of the things that has been very, very helpful for us is our own use. In fact, I do this all the way, you know, a lot of our own tools become instruments of changing culture. Uh, That means that we really track, you know, monthly active, monthly active versus daily active ratios. Uh, consumption, consumption growth, uh, these are all the things that we measure. As much as we measure any in quarter revenue or profit by segment, and these are, not, are all the way go and are tied to compensation. Uh, we've also, for example, it's not just the leadership team in our field. Our sales culture has changed a lot because we have put a lot of uh, the sales compensation levers to also go from just the one-time license or bookings to actual consumption, uh, which means. It aligns us much better with our customers uh, and their success in using the products and getting benefits out of it. Uh, So I do believe that talking about the culture change and customer obsession and without tying it to some of these core levers of how you measure performance, if left undone, I think can sort of come to, the entire program can come to a knot. In our case, we've been able to sort of take action on all of those levers.
0: Yeah, it's about alignment, that's right. ultimately, isn't it? That's absolutely um, right. And, and that's, some of the metrics you're describing there, it's almost like the these are empathy metrics in a way. I mean, you've, you've talked quite a lot about the the need for a culture of greater empathy, because it's only through empathy that you can really understand the sort of unmet needs of, of customers. But some of these forward-looking metrics, they're sort of metrics of, are these products getting
1: traction? Do customers love them? Are they using them? That's correct. All of us are human, ultimately, and when you think about culture is all about business and metrics and scorecards and what have you, uh, you can get a lot, uh, but it just doesn't invoke, uh, I think, uh, what is that real innate capability that we all have. because work is such a large part of what we do in life that if it was only about achieving some scorecard metrics, I don't think that that would be enough of a deep meaning for us. So that's why, like, the reason why I talk about empathy is I believe this is the leading indicator of success, which is, Look, innovation comes only because you are able to meet unmet, unarticulated needs. That comes from a deep sense of capability you have, which in many cases, in all cases, is innate. That is empathy. But you can't sort of go to work and say, turn on the empathy button. Your life's experience will give you that passion, understanding for a particular customer, a particular use case. And how you can then connect that to your work is what we want to invoke in the 100,000 people who work at Microsoft. So I like to emphasize that. And then of course, there are all these metrics which are real compensation drivers, which as you pointed out, do relate to this. But I don't think, if I, and, I don't know, some behavioral economist somewhere will, I'm sure, win a Nobel Prize by figuring this out. But I don't think we make decisions thinking that these two things are connected. We as humans are not, we, are, we're, we all have bounded rationality, as Herbert Simon would say. And so, therefore, it might, in theory, be correct. But in practice, none of us make these decisions thinking of this as connected.
0: And presumably, I mean, part of that is around talent as well. If you want to attract the very best people in some of these really competitive fields, they want to go to work feeling and knowing that they're doing something for a purpose. Right? It can't just be about the extrinsic motivation of the paycheck, because they could pick that up in any number of different places.
1: That is absolutely one of the key things, which is I feel like just individuals, companies have an identity, and that's why I talk about it even as a soul, and it's that collective purpose that this company represents. For example, at Microsoft, we talk about our mission as being empowering people and organizations all over the planet to achieve more. And every one of those words, for me, telegraphs that. all, right? It's, it's we think about people and institutions people build that are gonna outlast them as a first-class software construct. We think about this globally. I mean, in fact, I'm a product of that, if you will. We think not about the technology we create, it is about the technology others create using what we create. I mean, whether it's a student writing uh, a term paper or a small business becoming more productive or a developer writing the next world-changing application, we think about creating tools for other technologists That's why you join Microsoft. In fact, I tell college kids whom I'm trying to interview and join, and when they say, hey, we have a couple of different offers, why should I join Microsoft? I say, look, simple. If you wanna be cool, go join somebody else. If you wanna make others cool, come join Microsoft. That's the test. What's your self-image? What is it that you wanna do? And I'll go one step further. Business models should be constructed so that they reinforce your core identity. You can't say one thing. Somebody said you can only trust people who think, say and do the same thing. And I think you can only trust companies that you know are thinking, saying, and doing the same thing. That's the consistency that you need.
0: Can you pivot and talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. And what advice do you give to executives that you would talk to about? how to leverage AI in their businesses?
1: I believe AI is one of the more defining uh, technologies of our time. I am most excited, for example, in the AI technologies helping with inclusivity. Uh, for example, in the latest release of Windows, we have something called eye gaze, uh, which allows anybody who is suffering from ALS to be able to type just with their gaze. We have learning tools inside a Word and OneNote that allow anyone with dyslexia to improve their reading. It's powerful stuff and it's a very practical way for you to deploy uh, some of these tools so that more people in your workforce can fully participate, I think which is important. There's no question that the automation and the efficiencies of automation, for example, you go to support.microsoft.com, it's a bot. It's a very, very smart. It uses some of the latest techniques of reinforcement learning to answer questions that customers may have. And of course, if it you know runs out of uh, gas, it turns over to the customer service representative, who's also using the bot in order to help him answer. The question, so we have the full gamut of technology that is getting deployed, or speech recognition breakthroughs. We now, you know, are really got human-level speech recognition. Late, you know, just last month, there was a contest in Stanford for machine reading and comprehension, uh, and Microsoft was number one in it. Uh, that means you can read a piece of, let's say, text and start answering questions like a reading comprehension test without necessarily being fed the answers, which are indexed in the text. That's real Turing test stuff. It's absolutely, and so the advances are fairly enormous, and they will lead to productivity gain broadly. And so, therefore, every CEO, every executive, it needs to be thinking about how can I get because of AI more analytical power or predictive power inside of my business process or organization. That's really ultimately what needs to be the translation of the AI capability to productivity.
0: Is there something around the IT configuration as well and and the sort of IT capabilities you need, but also the kind of back-end systems that you need?
1: I mean, I would say there are two big considerations. One of the other fundamental things is there's no way to create AI if you don't have data. If your data inside your organization is siloed, in fact, that's gonna be a challenge to create AI. Let's just say customer connection. In order to be able to be much better at omni-channel customer connection, which it doesn't matter whether you're a retailer, whether you're a CPG or a bank, that means the log data from your website to your mobile analytics, to your CRM system, to all the other data streams, all have to come together in order to create the next best touch point action with the customer. That's both an AI problem and a data problem. So one of the things that we like to stress is how can we help our customers first get their data estate, in many cases in the cloud, so that then they can reason on top of it and create these transformative outcomes, whether it is connecting with customers or operational efficiencies or even changing the nature of their products. Um, And so that's, I think, a a super important thing. And I'll just add even, Trust is going to be of paramount importance, not just the security side of it, right? Uh, Because that itself is a big piece. It's also the trust of business model. Uh, You need to pick partners who are going to then help you with your capability building, whose interests Are aligned with your interests long term and that i think is a very very important piece uh, of the puzzle
0: behind the question partly as well of what's your advice to other ceos is if you're a senior exec at a a big industrial company for example there are a lot of different potential use cases and places that you could deploy ai any generalizable advice about how to look across those use cases and what to go for first
1: i think that the place where when I pattern match and look at some of the best use cases and easy to get started would be anything with customer experience. Uh, that is, I think a code use case uh-huh. because let's even say uh, there's omnichannel customer data and the ability to do the next best action. you know whether it can be a salesforce or inside sales or your website personalization, It can come in a variety of different ways, but connecting with your customers more deeply using your data and your ability to reason over data using the latest AI techniques is one use case. The second use case is supply chain or operational efficiencies, and what can you do in order to be able to operate IoT is a fascinating thing. If you think about it, most of these projects where you have a good or a service, you're collecting operational data from it, uh, you're doing preventive maintenance, and then you're gonna connect it to field service because once you can predict something, you wanna actually connect it to somebody coming and fixing it before it's broken. That's a thing that can drive both top line and bottom line efficiencies. That's a great use case, and we see a lot of it, especially in industrial companies. We also see a lot of deployment of technology to empower people inside the organization. In fact, I'm so fascinated to see how HoloLens is being used for doing oil field inspections or training, Um, and not just the traditional knowledge work, but even what I would call frontline work. And so empowering, because sometimes organizations all have this cobbler's children problem, which is they talk about all these great things we'll do for customers, we'll do these things for partners, except you also need to do fantastic things for your employees so that they can do all these great things for customers and partners.
0: Something that I think you've done fantastically well is uh, to bring Microsoft along in its embrace of cloud. And in many ways, that was a classic innovators dilemma. Clayton Christensen textbook case of a new technology coming along with, let's be honest, probably a lower margin structure than an older technology around servers. Again, just reflect a little bit any generalizable lessons because so many companies are facing this now. They're now being attacked by new players with new business models, probably at lower margins, and they're in the innovators dilemma position.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the only generalizable piece there is whenever you can reconceptualize your business to be non-zero-sum, right? So these shifts, if they are zero-sum, in other words, All I have to do is to jump onto this new paradigm only to essentially regain the business I have. They're tough. Uh, and, if, and especially if they come with uh, lower gross margin uh, or ro- lower net margin, then you really, you know, it's sort of an impossible task. But what I've found is just imagine, I mean, and our own business history can teach us. A railroad company, whatever, in the 1930s, if they had conceptualized themselves as, hey, we're in the transportation business versus we're in the railroad probably would have seen uh, their ability to, try, you know, line extend or jump into new businesses. That's, I think, what companies have to do, which is to understand more broadly what category they are in versus very narrowly by, uh, by technology they're using today. Uh, that's why I like to talk about a perpetual or a perennial category we are in is in the modern workplace. My bet is that the workplace will always remain and it'll always need to be modern. We're not trying to essentially talk about one tool or one service, but our job is to build new technology for the modern workplace. That's a better way to think about the future. Yeah, so it's like that John
0: Chambers thing, no technology religion, but also no business model
1: religion. That's right, no technology, no business model, and the ability to frame things with a broader lens uh, versus a very narrow product definition or category definition based on what has happened in the past. Well, Satya Nadella, thanks so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.